Hi, everyone. We are so excited that you are joining us for this week's incredible episode with Jana Scott Tarman. I wanted to take a moment before we get started today to let you all know that this episode contains some content that is graphic, shocking, and might be disturbing to some of our listeners, as it should be. Specifically, the events of 9-11 and details of a suicide are discussed. While this is a podcast designed to inspire our next generation of leaders by sharing stories, that sometimes means remembering and acknowledging the gravity and absolute necessity of the work we do in this community. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Jana Scott Tarman. Jana joined the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2002, where she has served as a counterintelligence officer, a senior analytic reviewer, an executive briefer for the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, and currently provides intelligence oversight for the Office of Counterintelligence. Jana received the 2017 Intelligence and National Security Alliance Joan A. Dempsey Mentorship Achievement Award, principally for her work as the Acting Chief of DIA's Counterintelligence Analysis Division, including the Supply Chain Risk Management Threat Analysis Center. Hi, Jana. We are very, very happy that you're joining us today. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for having me. So I've got to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this up front. I was particularly excited to have you on because I have been a member um, and a volunteer with INSA for 10 or 12 years, and I have attended every single um, Achievement Award. And I was there when you accepted your award in 2017. And I will never forget for the rest of my life, your acceptance speech. And it gives me chills thinking about it. And I can tell the listeners here that there was not a dry eye in the entire room at the Institute of Peace is where it's held. And I was so thrilled that you decided to join us today because it was so touching for me and it was moving and it just was a testament to who a real mentor should be. And I'm just so thankful that you've decided to join us today. Thanks. I'm, I like I said, I'm really great to, grateful to be here. And my eyes were not dry that day either. Well, you know, let's just jump in. And our listeners may be interested to know that you consider yourself an accidental intelligence officer. So can you tell us what you mean by that and how you found your way into the community? Sure. So the, the answer to how did Jana get into Intel is definitely accidentally, not part <laughs> of the life plan. So I, I knew I wanted to be an inter, international attorney since I was a little kid. Like even growing up in a small town, I knew I wanted to do international law. And I actually came to D.C. for George Washington's law school downtown specifically because 
they had this great program where you could study law at GW and then go to Oxford in England and study human rights law specifically. So, so I did that. I loved that. I got back from that, that tour in Oxford and it started to dawn on me with only one year left in law school that there is this category of international law and intelligence that unless you're in it, there's no way to understand what's happening behind that curtain. Mm-hmm. So with one summer left before I graduate, I decided I would apply for an internship with a defense intelligence agency. And, you know, totally lucky for me, they, they picked me up for the summer. And, and I had a great experience. It was in counterintelligence. Um, I learned a ton. I learned what I wanted to know that I could not have learned if I had not stepped into the intel world. And at the end of that summer, it was at the Pentagon, um, the team lead there said, hey, Jana, we'd love to have you. Would you like to come on full time? And I said, wow, I've, you know, what a thrill. It's been a great experience, but absolutely no thank you. It's not part of my <laughs> life. So um, I should say, you know, two weeks later, it's only about a two week gap between then and me on the Metro on an ordinary day, heading to law school in George Washington for my last year. And as an aside, it's important for the listeners to know I was also um, an emergency medical technician, an EMT. Um, I used to tell people, like joke around that I was an EMT so that when I was a lawyer, I wouldn't have to chase the ambulance. I would already be on it. Um, (laughs) But the reality is I just, you know, I just wanted to do more. And George Washington gave me the opportunity to get my certificate as an EMT through their, their medical program. So so I'm on my way again, an ordinary day, two weeks after my internship with the Pentagon, and I'm on the Metro heading to law school. And just as I'm stepping off the subway and onto the platform, there's a announcement over the loudspeaker. And the announcement is something like, you know, attention passengers, the Metro station at the Pentagon is closed because it's been attacked. And I just remember freezing. Like, I'm sure the people behind me were like tripping over themselves not to run into me because I just froze in place. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, law school, I'm going to be an international lawyer. I go to the left and I head to George uh, Washington for, you know, normal day, ordinary day of law school. But I'm also an EMT. And if I head to the right, I can go to the hospital and, you know, maybe they maybe they need my help. I I can honestly say there's so many things I don't remember about that day, but one of them that I really don't remember making the decision. I just went right. I just headed to the hospital. I'm not even sure how my feet got me there. But but when I arrive, uh, the hospital is in chaos like I had never seen. You know, not nothing from my small hometown, nothing from what I had seen in the hospital thus far, nothing from the Pentagon, like no chaos. I've never seen anything like it. They were they were pushing all of the tables in the cafeteria together and they were throwing white sheets over each one and and calling it a hospital bed. Um, one of the uh, ER doctors that knew me as an EMT came up and said, Jana, come here quickly. And he took this masking tape and he wrote, he used the masking tape to draw an X on my front and he wrote EMT down both arms. And then he did the same thing on my back. And he, and he literally says, that's, that's your uniform. Uh, at, at first, the plan was that I was going to stay at the hospital and help with triage. You know, I'm just an EMT. They have paramedics. They have ER doctors. I'll stay at the uh, hospital. I'll help with triage. But it sort of dawns on all of us at once that I'm the only person in the hospital that knows the inside of the Pentagon. You know, not, you know, not part of the life plan, right? Total by, totally by accident. So seconds later, I'm 
in the back of an ambulance off to have the worst day of my life. And again, this is where the, you know, the fragments of the day come in. I remember putting my jacket, this light jean jacket. I remember putting it on a victim. I don't remember their name. On, on one of the trips from the Pentagon to the hospital, our ambulance was in a minor car crash. I mean, that was happening all over the city, right? Because everyone's sporadic and crazy that day. And I got a cut in the accident above my uh, right eye. I mean, bad enough that it had to require surgical glue to, to close it up. Megan, I can't remember who closed it. Like, I can't remember who applied the glue. Like, isn't that something that I should that I should remember from that day, but I, but I just don't, um, late, late that evening when I finally, finally got home, I do remember very distinctly getting a call from one of the managers from the internship that I had worked at the Pentagon. And he calls and he's on the phone and he says, Hey, Jana, we just want to let you got, you know, that our team got out. Okay. And I said, thank you. I just want to let you know I'm coming back. I'll be there. And and I did. That's just such a moving story. And, uh, you know, for me, and I, I think for many others that lived through that day, it never ceases to, to kind of shake you to your core. Um, and even listening to you now, uh, I can't tell you how many times I, I got goosebumps, um, just because it was a it was a very emotional day and I can tell it it's still very emotional for you and for me as well. And uh, the fact that that was kind of your, your jumping off point, right. To saying, this is what I want to do. I I learned so much that day, Megan. I I met this one guy in the hospital that had been in a car accident again, because it's crazy day. Right. And he had a, he literally had a bone sticking out of his leg and we had him in one of the triage rooms. And he said, you just need to get to the Pentagon. Leave me alone. You just need to get to the Pentagon. And I thought, okay, this is patriotism. I didn't know what that word meant before. Yeah. So Jana, you know, you come out of that day and you were intending to be an attorney and now things have totally changed. Um, and so, you know, what was, what was next after that? Where did you, what was the next uh, turning point for you? What did you do next? So Megan, I did finished law school. You know, I had only a year left at that point anyways. And and as you know, it takes a little while to sort of in process back into the uh, Intel community. So I took about, you know, took took the year, finished law school and and came back the following summer. Um, One of my very first jobs um, upon arriving at DIA full time is as an executive briefer at the Pentagon. Um, So I'm back. So I'm back in the in the Pentagon. And an executive briefer job is, it's fantastic. So you arrive about 2 a.m. in the morning at the Pentagon and you speed read all of the intelligence from the last 24 hours. And then as the executives arrive in the morning, you sit down with them and you know summarize what you've read and what they need to know specifically for their area of responsibility. Um, and one, gosh, one story I could share sort of to, you know, lighten my own heart after uh, talking about my 9-11 experience. Um, I've actually never shared this story with DIA leadership. So let's let's hope I don't get fired. But <laughs> the heart of your job as an executive briefer is to represent DIA to these executives of the Pentagon and to put DIA's best foot forward and to demonstrate DIA's capabilities and the talents and what we can bring to the decision makers um, and I got this, as I mentioned, I got these great opportunities to meet with executives and to sit down with them and, you know, 
really tell them what they need to know to make decisions to make the country safer that day. And one of those days, I was assigned to give the morning briefing to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Western Hemisphere Affairs. And it, we shortened that to DASD. So the DASD for Western Hemisphere Affairs, he's the equivalent of a two-star general, roughly. And he's got this just immaculate office. Like, it's beautiful. We got a nice mahogany table where I sit down to give him his briefing. And this is all way pre-COVID. So he's sitting less than two feet from me. And I sit down. I think he even has his coffee. And gosh, I hope he didn't have his breakfast, but he did. <laughs> um, and I sit down next to him. And by the way, Megan, I'm in my first trimester. And I am... I've got morning sickness, like you would not believe every day coming in at 2am in the morning while pregnant wasn't my best plan decision. Uh, but I sit down, I'm determined to get through this day. And I sit down and I open my briefing book. And I start to give him his intelligence briefing. And Megan, I'm not two sentences in. And I literally throw up on my intelligence. No. Like, I'm, sure, <laughs> no way. I'm sure you have heard the phrase, like, you know, somebody threw up on the paper, which usually means they like marked it all up and they critiqued it and stuff. Right. No, I literally two sentences in, in with this, you know, brilliant man sitting two feet from me. I threw up all over my intelligence book and I turned around, he had a trash can right there and I finished in his trash can and I was mortified. Like I, can't even believe that this has just happened. He could not be any nicer. He, you know, I'll talk about, you know, I frequently talk about men as allies to professional women. Like this was one that could have been a little bit less of an ally that day. Cause he was like, you know, are you okay? And I was like, I am so sorry. You know, it's just morning sickness. I'm pregnant. Um, it'll go away in two minutes. And he's like, oh, well then we can continue. And I was like, no, no, I am totally done. I, oh my gosh, I, my filthy intelligence. I'm like packing it up, throwing it in my bag, grabbing the bag out of his trash can. I just couldn't get out of there fast enough. I mean, I, I was absolutely mortified. Um, I guess, I guess, Megan, we should probably take a moment for me to apologize to DIA and say, I am sorry for being the worst representative of your agency ever. Oh, <laughs> I, that is was not awful. even close. No, no, no. <laughs> wow, what a good story. So you mentioned allies in the workplace or men being allies. Um, and it's a phrase I've heard you use, you know, uh, there's a phrase I heard you use, don't protect women out of their own goals. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so men as allies, and I and let me start with I love men, Megan. I mean, so much so I married one, and <laughs> I I think chivalry is really sexy. Like since the day I met my husband, I have not mowed a lawn, I have not carried a heavy piece of luggage, I have not changed my oil, and I'm sure that makes me like terribly two faced. But I have no intention of disavowing him of his opinion that I am too delicate for this kind of work. Because <laughs> I'm perfectly happy not carrying heavy luggage. Um, but at work, you know, when you when we walk into that professional setting, I think there needs to be just a slight sort of change to the way that chivalry is perceived and the way that it is executed. And that is to say that chivalry in the workplace should be about protecting a woman's goals and not her person. So when I when I began in DIA, um, 
one of the first experiences I had was as an analyst, and it was right at the beginning of the second Iraq war. And one of my female colleagues, she was passionate about helping directly U.S. soldiers in Iraq. And she, you know, that was her goal so much so that she signed up as a volunteer for the first deployment of analysts to Iraq. Um, you know, that was, that was her passion. That was how she was serving her country. And our supervisor at the time, a male supervisor, I mean, he, he was very honest at that time. And he actually said, I can't stomach putting a woman in harm's way. Um, and so he took her name off the list. I don't think, I mean, he, this is not a, this is not a terrible person. This is, you know, not somebody who intentionally was discriminating, although, I mean, that's the result of it. Um, but he just, you know, he protected her out of her own goals. Um, I don't think I would, I don't think I'll ever see anything sort of that, that direct again. But something that I do see even now in the Intel community is when we'll have a, you know, say young uh, female officer who is the best and the brightest in a particular topic. And we're about to send her to the, to the Hill or to the White House or to the Pentagon in a very stressful sort of briefing situation. I have often seen where a leader above her, in most cases, men, will say, well, I don't want to put her in such a stressful environment. So I'm going to send this colleague as backup, or I'm going to send this colleague as top cover. And what we have done when we make that decision is we protect her out of her own opportunity to shine. And so that's why I just stress that, you know, chivalry in the workplace, let's just focus it on protecting a woman's goals and not her person. Uh, and I think that's the best way for men to be allies of professional women. I love that. So I do want to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, when you began working in counterintelligence in Quantico, your career progressed really rapidly. Um, so do you have any advice on acclimating to a role that you didn't have the opportunity to prepare for? So, uh, Megan, I've made a career out of best of lucks. <laughs> and what I mean by that is... You know, somebody just left. We have an emergency opening. Jana, you have no experience, but best of luck to you. It's yours now. So a career out of best of lucks. Uh, the best example that I can give is my, my first supervisory position. I had applied to be the deputy to a division of a couple of hundred of analysts couple of hundred. So, you know, that's a, that's a big supervisory responsibility for your first supervisory position. But in this case, I applied to be the deputy and the chief was fantastic. A great, um, you know, ally of women, men as allies, kind of a, a gentleman. Um, I knew I could learn from him. I knew he could mentor me as I took on this supervisory role. However, I think it was two days in, like if it was more than five days, like there's no way it was a, it was somewhere between two and five days into this new job. He took, he got this awesome opportunity and he took a rotation out of the office for 365 days. So with my, you know, two, somewhere between two and five days experience, I am now the acting chief of a couple of hundred of analysts. So best of luck to me <laughs> uh, on one of those ordinary days, sort of a theme for me. Everything extraordinary starts on an ordinary day. Um, I had one of our supervisors that worked for me uh, come come to my office. 
you know, simple knock on the door, sort of a routine thing. He said, uh, Jana, we wanted to let you know that one of our analysts didn't make it in this morning and he hasn't called in. I mean, that's not extraordinary. We all live in the Washington, D.C. area. Traffic is horrible. That sort of thing happens. So I said, no problem. And I, you know, quickly took some time to look up his digits and I gave him a call on his cell phone and he didn't answer. And that's a little bit odder because usually in D.C., when you're stuck in traffic, you want to tell people about it. Like you want to say how miserable it is, this right. traffic that day. So, you know, that's that's a little odder. And I said, OK, I'll dig a little bit more. And I looked up his emergency contacts, which was family, and I gave them a call. Um, I didn't reach them. It turned out because they were out of town. But there's a, a moment, Megan, when you start to get that feeling in your stomach. Like I stopped thinking of this sort of ordinary experience as we have an analyst that hasn't called in to be it becoming, I have an analyst who's a combat vet who is, I am sure, seen more trauma than is fair for anyone who was not picking up his phone. Like the sort of the, the tenor of what was going on was quickly changing in our minds. Um, so I um, picked up the phone and called DIA security and they were fantastic. Um, very immediately, they got a hold of local law enforcement and together went to the analyst home. Uh, I was on the phone with the DIA special agent when they arrived at the home. And what I remember most is the dog, the analyst dog inside, just barking, just unrelentingly from inside the door. And there's just something about the bark. Like it, it wasn't, there's people at my house, so I'm barking and it wasn't, it wasn't, I want to go outside or anything. It was this, this cry for help that I think only, a you know, man's best friend can give. I, every time I need to relay this story, I talk about this barking because I, I think Megan, that somehow I think if somebody else can hear the barking, then I can stop hearing it because mm. it is always in my head. Um, so the law enforcement, as I said, very quickly got a, did get a hold of family who gave them permission to enter the home. And the dog's bark was exactly right, because when they got inside, they found that our analyst, our combat vet had lost his life that morning to suicide. So again, I'm, I'm a brand new supervisor. If there is a book in this situation, I certainly hadn't read it. But thank goodness I have 35 years experience as a human. And I think that's when you're put in these, you know, best of luck situations. I just, that's what you have to go back to. That's what you have to rely on. So, you know, I, you know, I hang up with security. I know now what has happened. I know that we have, we have lost a soldier and I'm just thinking like, you know, what, who needs to know, what do I need to do next? And I, I discover very quickly that he had, two best friends on the floor, like to the point that they had lunch together in our building every single day at noon. And I, I'm just thinking that I can't let them find out that their party of three is a party of two when they get downstairs. Like I can't let that be how they find out. So, so I invited them down to my office and we sat down together and 
I, I told them that they had lost their friend, that we had all lost a friend. Um, and that's when I, I cried. I mean, we, all three of us, we cried together. And the next sort of the next thing that dawns on me is his team, including this supervisor who had so diligently first thing come and reported that there was a problem. I thought I can't let the supervisor, I can't let his team find out the down a member through, you know, roommate or scuttlebutt on the floor. So I call them down next. I sit down with them again. We all cry together. And then that, that's how my day repeats all, all day long. This team needs to know, this team needs to know until everyone on the floor knows. And I've now cried in front of a couple of hundred of analysts. And I am, I mean, it's not, it's not how I intended to lead that day, right? Right, Meg? It's not how I ever intended to lead, uh, not crying in front of everyone. But it was, you know, I'm so proud of that team because they are, they become motivated for the DIA mission. Like, like nothing I had ever seen, you know, the core, the core of what we do at DIA, the core of our our core purpose is to protect U.S. service persons from harm. And we lost a soldier that day and we were not going to lose one the next day. And we were not going to lose one the day after that. We were so committed to that mission. I'm so proud of that team. One of the office supervisors above me, um, his, uh, he was the office chief at the time. His name is John Dixon. He came down to check on us, of course, um, and he witnessed sort of, you know, how we were dealing with it. He he sat in on a number of the meetings that I had with the teams to tell them uh, about our loss. He saw me crying in front of hundreds of people. And I remember thinking, you know, when he swung by at the end of the day again, that, you know, he would be perfectly within his right to pull me aside and say, you know, Jana, as a leader, as a new supervisor, you know, you need to, you need to be less emotional in front of your folks. You need to be, you know, you need to be solid in front of the team, even during a crisis. I think like, I think that would have been appropriate, but he didn't do that at all. That, you know, men as allies again, I was the only female at the time that sat at his leadership table, but I think he recognized that I could lead my way. Um, And in fact, a few months later, that position that I was in as the acting chief actually became available. And, you know, after going through the process again, instead of scolding me for the way I led, he, after that went through the hiring process, he actually offered me the promotion. A men is ally story. Uh, well, first I would like to say, I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss and for your team's loss. Um, that was uh, an extremely powerful story. And thank you for sharing that with us. Um, you know, that must've been just such a challenging situation to lead through or to just be in as a team member. So you talked a little bit about this, but could you share with us a little bit more about how, you know, your leadership style evolved after that and how the role of empathy kind of plays in connecting with your team? Because I think that, I mean, this is a really prime example, but how it's okay. It's okay to be empathetic and be an empathetic leader. Thanks. I, I agree. And I think it's really important to be authentic. You know, show up as yourself, even that if that means crying in front of hundreds of people. Um, the other thing I think is really important is that you need to lead the team that you have. So you need to figure out what motivates that team. And in that moment, what motivated that team was to protect our soldiers. Um, there have there have been other moments where it would be something else. Um you know, one example I, I have, I was supervising a large group of analysts again, 
And it just, I was in an environment, they were in an environment that just felt stale. And I think this happens a lot with analysts in the Intel community. We hire these brilliant creative minds because we need them to make discoveries that no one else has ever discovered. And then we bring them into our secured facilities and we sit them in a cube and we take away their cell phone and we take away their internet access and we put all of these layers of policy and procedure and bureaucracy on top of them. And then we say, you need to think outside the box. <laughs> right. like literally put them in a box and then say, think outside the box. So that, this is the team that I have. And, and like I said, you need to lead the team that you have. So I start looking around and thinking, what, what will motivate this group of analysts? And one of the things that I noticed is every time I went into one of our uh, staff rooms, I would see doodles all over the whiteboards. So like, you know, if an analyst is sitting over here in the corner, he's got a whiteboard behind him. By time he leaves, I've got like a little stick figure soldier. <laughs> or if it's, you know, Halloween next week, I'll notice in three out of the four conference rooms, we've got, you know, ghoul analysts running around on our whiteboards. So, so clearly art is a, is an outlet, if not a motivator for, for many members of this team. So so what I did is I went to Michael's and bought these huge white canvases. Actually, I should correct myself. I sent my husband to Michael's <laughs> to buy these huge white canvases. We brought them in. We threw them up all over the walls in the office. We put up buckets of paints and markers. And we said, you need a creative outlet. You know, you need to get the juices flowing. You need to make a discovery and something's just not clicking. Feel free to go and graffiti the walls. You know, go doodle all over the place. Um, the other the other thing we did because of the timing of the year, it was the last season of Game of Thrones. And I remember sitting in my office and these analysts, again, in this you know fairly stale environment, would walk by and I would hear, you know, mother of dragons, who's going to win the Iron Throne? And did you see last night's episode? And, you know, the White Walkers. And I mean, it was a theme of every passerby or discussion that I was hearing. So I thought, OK, this is the team I have. I got to lead the team I have. So we got DIA's print shop. I'm not sure how we talked him into it, but we got DIA's <laughs> print shop to print this giant map that's based loosely on Westeros from Game of Thrones. And we divide it up into 12 kingdoms, which is the number of branches we had on the floor. And we said, okay, if you publish for the president, I'll give you a knight for your kingdom. And, you know, if you brief at the White House, I'll give you a dragon. And if you make this analytic discovery, I'll give you a castle. And we've got stickers now going up all over this map. And the idea is at the end of the year, we're going to battle it out to see who gets the counterintelligence office. So instead of who gets the Iron Throne, it's who gets the Sea Iron Throne. <laughs> so it's a great game. But of course, in the middle of me, you know, trying to be my authentic self, leading the team that I have, we have a new SES that arrives at the office. You know, a level above me is going to be the deputy chief of the office. His name is Angel Rodriguez. He comes to take a tour of our office, Megan. And I am like a teenager who did not have time to clean up after the party before mom and dad come home. I'm giving him a tour and I am like all business. I am, you know, this mission and that mission and this impact and that impact and, you know, policy review and, and I just see his eyes darting around, looking at the graffiti and the doodles all over the wall, all over the office. 
he walks by that giant map of, you know, our Game of Thrones, Westeros-like kingdoms and sees the stickers all over it. And I, But I'm still trying to be like totally professional, like totally like, right. you know, mission focus and we're having this impact, sir. And these two grown men, Megan, I swear, these two men, they come up and interrupt us because I don't know who Angel is. And they say, Jana, you know, Scrimaria Kingdom got <laughs> dragon because they briefed, you know, this NSC director. But last week we were briefing the Dazzy for whatever and we got a castle, but we should have got, and I, they are arguing over stickers in front of Angel. I'm going to be fired. Like that's the only possible outcome. Oh, I'm sure see. you're red and you're. Just oh, like, I totally, oh I totally was. Uh, and I'm thinking there's no way he sees this as leadership. You know, like it certainly can't be any style of leadership he's ever seen before. Uh, but men as allies will return to that theme. Instead of firing me, spoiler alert, he actually took over an island on that map. And within weeks, he's arguing over what sticker he gets for his island. I mean, it was just amazing how he just, you know, sort of saw our team for what it was, that this was working for us, and he just joined in. A true men as allies story. And I can tell you, after that year, we had some of the most viewed products in all of DIA. It might have actually been the most viewed. And we had impacts and discoveries about threats to our supply chain I mean, success stories that I don't think our office will ever repeat. I mean, it was the most successful analytic year. I mean, the best I can hope for is that HBO will bring back a spinoff series because maybe then, maybe then we'll be motivated again. But it was, you know, it really worked for us. It was really a way for me to show up authentically as a leader and to lead the team that I had. Well, and it seems like it created a really tight knit team, right? Like you would want, I would think other offices would look at yours and be like, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that team. So that's awesome. So to kind of pull on that thread about, you know, your leadership style and, and your different experiences, you've, you've, you've shared with us different experiences as a leader. Tell me about one of your best days as, as a leader. Oh, so can I pick every day pre-COVID? Every day. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know about my best, but I could definitely tell you my, my proudest day of a leader, as a leader. Um, and, and like every other story I've told today, it starts off on an ordinary day. Because as I said, everything ordinary, everything extraordinary starts ordinary. I was, you know, at my desk, my head just buried in bureaucracy, totally concentrating on what I was doing. And there's a knock on the door and I look up, you know, I wasn't expecting anyone. I look up and it is one of our highest performing analysts. I mean, just tremendous analyst, one more national and DIA awards than I'll ever see, much less earn. And an analyst that until that day, I think I'd known him for five years, until that day, I had only known him as he. So as he. And this brilliant analyst is here to sh- here um, at my office to specifically share that she she was ready to come to work as her true self. It was a breathless moment for me. You know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's not just how we built this country. It's the only way we're going to defend it. 
if we have a country that's for all, we have to have an intel force that's made up of all in order to protect it. And this analyst, uh, this absolutely courageous, amazing woman, brought us all one step closer to that all that day. One, uh, another, you know, uh, men as allies story. One of our male supervisors on the floor, he sent an email that day to everyone on the floor. He said, I am an Iraq combat vet. And this analyst's transition to her true self in our workforce is the most courageous thing I have ever seen. And I totally agreed with him. Totally agreed with him. Uh, because of that day and that shared moment, I will be committed to that analyst career for the rest of mine. That That is such a wonderful story. Thank, I mean, just one after another sharing these amazing stories with us. Thank you so much. So, you know, I hate to, to kind of end this, but, um, you know, we have one last question for you. This one is kind of fun. Uh, as I think you know, we end each episode with the same question and in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly. If you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So Megan, my code name would be The Trampoline because my purpose is to catch you on your worst day and propel you on your best. Plus, how great does DIA sound? When you over here in the kitchenette, you know, something like, does anyone know if the trampoline is available for our 3 p.m. staff meeting? <laughs> right? That's, right. that's where you want to work. So, so the trampoline. Oh, what a good mantra, too, for any leader. I mean, that's awesome. Jana has got to be one of the most moving episodes that we have taped. And it's going to show my age. I say taped, but I mean, you know, recorded. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing these very intimate and private stories with us. You know, thank you for your service, your leadership, your mentorship. Uh, I'm thrilled to know you and I hope you, you enjoyed your time with us today. If you or anyone you know is having thoughts of suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or go to your local emergency department or dial 911. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast.com at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grand Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.